Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. If you want to learn more of the stories of Sage and Savant and the reasons why I record these broadcasts, you can pick up our book, Transmigrations, available on our website and everywhere books are sold. This month's program, the second half of our special holiday double episode, is entitled Bright Spots in Dark Times and is sponsored by Chick Tech. We are proud to feature the music of This Way to the Egress. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our doctor, she had triggered a recall from the time of Charlemagne, leaving her friends in the past. The doctor's actions have been at times dangerous and certainly ill-advised, but we have always been able to count on her being honorable. I am afraid, however, that her actions of late have called her integrity into question. Is Petronella Sage willing to sacrifice all, even friends, to the altar of science? Upon awakening, Sage is quick to arise from her table and change clothes. She emerges from the changing room in a surgical apron and crosses to the closet where the body of Cunningham had rested until just a couple of weeks ago. She pushes the light switch as she steps across the threshold and the room is bathed in bright electrical light. Instead of the convalescent's gurney against the wall, there is a surgical table in the center of the room, a cart containing a variety of surgical instruments arranged on a cloth-covered tray, and a large columnar item draped in cloth. She whips the cloth aside and reveals a large round jar containing a human brain floating in amber liquid. Can this be what is left of our provost? Hello, Mix Cunningham. Did you miss me? We're going to have a look at your left cerebral hemisphere since your right hemisphere refused to give up your secrets. Shall we get started? Petra pulls the blob of human tissue from the liquid, and I can see that it is only one half the human brain. What can she have done with the other half? Get the frontal lobe away. Parietal lobe can stay. Whilst frontal lobe I flay. Ah, oh, such a neat and orderly brain you have, Mix Cunningham. No lesions, no clots, everything in its place, and no place for women, hmm? 
<laughs> well, now you must make a place for a woman because she has her fingers on your central sulcus, examining the very tissue that makes you tick. <laughs> there must be something, uh, some marker that shows my presence. There must be some indicator of why your body was so determined to hold on to my consciousness. There is no possible way that your flabby flesh had a greater demand on my consciousness than my own younger, healthier, and frankly, more suited to purpose form. Calypso said that there were markers that associated certain consciousnesses with certain bodies. Calypso said that those markers were artificially inserted into the brain. Well, if there is a marker, I will find it. And if I can see it, I can study it. And if I can study it, I can recreate it at will. That is how science works, you know, Mix Cunningham. In science, that is how it works. Petra works long into the night, slicing the brain, placing the slices on glass slides, squishing them and laying them out to dry. She becomes more and more inchoate as the night goes onward. Her hair stands out from its mohawk in a kinky sprawl of curls. Her eyes glint with a maniacal light. Trying to grasp her thoughts becomes like trying to hold a fish. They thrash and fight and slip from my grasp. Finally, she has sliced apart the entire half-brain, and the prepared slides litter every surface and even cover the floor. She stands from the surgical table and stretches her back. Stepping carefully across the slides on the floor, she goes to the broom cupboard in the corner of the room and opens the door. Inside, a number of slides rest in a basket. She pulls one out and holds it to the light. It is a slice of brain, now dried, and it resembles nothing so much as the wing of a lacewing moth. She holds up slide after slide, squinting in frustration at each one before putting it back in the basket and grabbing the next. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. You will not keep your secrets from me, Mix Cunningham. I forbid it. Somewhere in this little Neanderthal brain of yours, there must be an answer. She does not find the answer she seeks, however, and at last she leaves the room, turning out the light and locking the door behind her. She quickly changes back into her Faraday armor and then goes to the center plinth to reset the machinery. She focuses the energy on her own individual plinth and without further delay, retakes her place and pulls the Edison tube to her mouth. Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, late 10th December, 1895, supplemental log. I've seen the Professor and Abigail successfully established in the time of Charlemagne and can return to Le Chargé de l'Affaire where Calypso and I can continue our work. I'm most excited to discover if the marker has been effective and if my return will be exactly as expected. As was the case with transmigration, my consciousness seems better able to adapt to translateral movement the more I undertake it. I will need to monitor the effects of repeatedly inhabiting the same body, but Calypso is convinced the problems evinced by entwining with Cunningham were a product of my repeatedly entering a body that was not properly prepared and rendered blank. 
If this method proves as efficacious as Calypso claims, it could open an entire new branch of research application. I have no real idea what is happening. Sage's thoughts have become less and less cogent in the past month, and her mental landscape is one of fast-darting ideas cutting through foggy considerations. I have never experienced mental illness myself, but I wonder if the muddle I am sensing in her brain is related to some conditions that fall under that diagnosis. For any matter, I am committed to follow this through and keep you updated, dear listener, to the best of my ability. And to that charge, I must inform you that Sage came to in the body of the young dandy with the severe head wound which she had occupied just a few days before. The room she has awakened in is a spare but cozy bedroom with a warm counterpane on a narrow bed and a washstand under a window looking out over the Rue de Seine. Oh, I am here. Good. Oh, oh, I still have a beastly headache, though. I hope that goes away. Perhaps I shouldn't waken Calypso. A rest will do nothing but good for this body, and we have time to create our experiments. Sage reclines back on the bed and closes her eyes. While she rests, I can perhaps check in on the professor and Abigail. Computer, do we have any files that will point me back to Aachen? Yes, Justin. The professor kept up his own personal diaries after the problems of the initial transmigrations. I can target on this entry dated 10th December 1895. Initializing file. It seems Abigail and the professor have settled into life in the menagerie with alacrity. In fact, I suspect that Abigail quickly established her dominance over the other keepers. No, 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 Heinrich. You cannot place the elephant's food into such a small basin. They need room for their trunk to move. But also, they need more greens. Do we not have any fresh grass or leaves we can add to the mixture? Oh, Johan, wait! This fruit is for the chimpanzee, thank you. Gustav, did you wash out the bottom of the elephant cage like I asked? Abigail conducts her troops with assuredness and aplomb, including, it seems, the professor. Ho, Abigail! You've put everyone to work this morning, I see. Oh, there is much to be done. Oh, what did you find out at the palace? How long will I need to wait before seeing the emperor? It's a most remarkable turn of fate. You shan't have to wait at all. What do you mean at all? Did you schedule an audience for today? Well, that's just it. I wasn't required to schedule an audience. Huh? You simply ring a bell and the emperor will come out to speak to you. It turns out that Charlemagne is a hands-on ruler. So I just walk up to the palace, demand to speak with the emperor, and it will happen. Well, there is no way to run an empire. Oh, I think it's a marvelous condition. Charles, he asked me to call him Charles, he is not one to stand on ceremony and likes to keep his finger on the pulse of what's happening. His ministers and functionaries scramble to keep up with him. He is astute, learned, and has a keen eye for detail. No wonder history remembers him as great. No man is great who collects exotic animals and then treats them so horribly. Ugh. Well... There's no time like the present, then. Let's go talk to the Emperor about the state of his menagerie. Well, yes. You might wish to clean up a little bit first. Charles is a very casual king, but a king nonetheless. Probably would not appreciate you bringing elephant dung into his home. <sighs> Fine. 
And so, Abigail took the time to clean up a little and make herself presentable. She was amazed at the facility to quickly get clean when, owing to your masculine gender, you could just duck your entire head into a bucket and scrub face, ears, and head in one quick swoop. All in all, she was finding that she didn't much mind being a man. As they followed the road leading from the menagerie to the palace, Abigail asked the question that had been nagging at the back of her mind in the 14 hours since Petra had taken unexpected leave. Erasmus, why do you think Petra has not returned? I've been thinking about this myself. It could be a problem with proximity. Perhaps the resonators do not work to keep us close if we are not all transmigrating at one time. No, that does not make sense. The resonators are not electrical nor even clockwork. They are simply inert echoing devices. As she traveled, the resonators on our Faraday suits would reflect hers no matter what. Yes, but what would those sound waves align with? Petra has said that they work because the acoustic waves mimic the Faraday patterns of our own consciousness. Oh, you're right. And if our consciousnesses are here, not there, preparing to travel, then... Then the proximity waves would have no way to link up. That's what I'm thinking. That means she could travel to this basic time and place, but she might end up miles away. Like how the two of you were separated on the Medusa. Yes. And if she is traveling by foot, a most likely expedient, unless she were to turn horse thief... <laughs> or be lucky enough to transmigrate into one with a horse. It could take a day or two for her to catch up to us again, mm. which is why it is important that we stay with the menagerie. Well, it is a good thing I'm perfectly content to do just that, then. <laughs> Having settled in their minds the question of the good doctor and given implicit permission to enjoy their circumstances, the two adventurers arrived at the stoop of the palace. As good as the professor's word, there was a bell rope, and they gave it a tug. The man that came in response to the bell was indeed the Emperor himself. The son of Pepin the Short and Bigfoot Bertha, Charles had been fortunate to inherit his mother's genes. He was six feet four, with a ruddy, healthy complexion, a full head of tousled brown curls, and a fulsome beard. His eyes were bright and assessing, alight with curiosity. And who is this come to my door? Ah, Savant. I'm surprised to see you back again so soon. Follow my lead. Uh, Charles, I wanted to introduce you to my colleague, the one I spoke of just this morning. This is Abbot uh, 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 Abraham Bach, um, the expert in care of management of exotic creatures I was telling you about. El Bach, I am very pleased to make your acquaintance. Um, call me Abe, please. Uh, we need to talk about the state of your menagerie. Yes, of course. Come in, come in. I shall order more wine and we can speak at length. And so, just like that, Abigail enters into her first audience with a monarch. She is pleased to realize that the Emperor is just a man, and a man with a high degree of integrity and concern for all the inhabitants of his empire, including the animal ones. She uses her time to lay out a system of care and management for the menagerie that will see the animals thrive, and the Emperor listens carefully as she speaks, occasionally asking questions or commenting on her ideas. The visit lasts long into the afternoon, and Abigail is hoarse by the time she and the Professor have left the palace. Will Abigail's campaign to better the conditions of the creatures in the Emperor's care succeed? 
We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of This Way to the Egress.
And now, back to our story. When we left our heroes, Abigail had just spent the afternoon explaining the myriad cruelties of the menagerie to the head of the Holy Roman Empire, who, to his credit, listened carefully and responded with true concern. Abigail went back to her creatures and the professor went out to see the many construction projects being undertaken by the Emperor. So we shall take this opportunity to check in on the doctor. Sage has translaterally migrated into a familiar body in the center of Le Chargé de la Fer. Dr. Sage rose from her narrow bed in the austere room and ventured down the stairs to discover Calypso in the dining room. A long mahogany table dominates the center of the room, and along one wall a large breakfront is loaded with a breakfast buffet. There are steaming samovars of coffee and tea framing each end of the buffet with giant baskets of bread of all kinds, fruits, cheeses, and chafing dishes holding eggs, potatoes, and porridge. Calypso has already filled a plate and taken a place at the table, so Petra follows suit. I trust you slept okay. You knew I was here. I heard you arrive. Uh, I'm sorry, I thought I was very quiet. Oh, you were. But when you sleep next door to an unoccupied body, you become attuned to the slightest sounds. Thank you. I did sleep well. Better than I have in weeks. And how was the head? Much better this morning, thank you. I'm not sure I gave you proper thanks for saving my life with that timely trepanning, by the way, but thank you for that as well. Oh, you do not owe me thanks for that. I want to delve further into the markers we discussed last time I was here. Now that the head is healing and I can concentrate, that is. Yes, well, about that. It is perhaps time that I came completely clean with you on my own presence here and what you encountered last week. I'm sorry, but you've lost me. <laughs> Quite. Let me start at the beginning. As you know, Les Chargés de la Fère is highly invested in your work. What you may not know is why. Well, at this point, it is safe to assume that you want the work on transmigration to continue. What is not clear is how you plan to benefit from that research. Would it shock you to know that this is not my body, that I am from the future? Well, I had come to that conclusion. You have too much knowledge of things you could not know by any other means. I'm assuming that you have somehow gotten a hold of my data and laboratory logs. Correct. There are still many things I cannot share with you for fear of tainting your research, however. But if you have my data, do you not have everything you need? You possibly know more than I know of the long-term results. In some ways, yes. Unfortunately, what we have is incomplete due to the normal ravages and mishaps of time. We do not have your complete records. There are many places where we are simply stabbing in the dark. For that reason, we need you to continue your work without interference. And for that reason, no matter what some think, we must follow your own rule number three. It is simply not prudent for us to share the secrets of the cerebral markers that demonstrate entanglement at this juncture. You understand? If you interfere, you might change the course of my work. Mm, exactly. But then... You operated on me, in a body that is not mine and would not have impacted my research in any way had it died. You understand the theory of probability, of course. 
Well, yes. I use many associative theorems in my analysis of the data collected from transmigration. Suffice it to say that we ran the probability and decided it was time that you learned of SBMI practice. SBMI? Single body, multiple inhabitants. It is one of the primary ways we use transmigration in the future. It allows us to set a predetermined arrival form. You are an SBMI. <laughs> that is why you didn't quite sound like yourself a few days ago. Yes. One result of SBMI is that the original patterns of the body are overwritten enough times that it technically becomes a blank slate. Each inhabitant then brings their individual personality and skill set to the fore. Until three days ago, the only version of Calypso you had interacted with was me. And this body? Is the perfect candidate for another SBMI, yes. And the factors that make him a good candidate. He's young, in good health, no detectable defects or mental issues, strong musculature. And an unknown local personage. And you decided to come clean with me now because... Because you are an astute observer, even when in mortal peril, and because you came back today finding your way into the same body. As such, we assumed your suspicions would have been aroused. How was this body available for transmigration? Three days is too far into the decomposition process for habitation. The only way this body could have been waiting for you would have been as an inhabited vessel or having been hooked into a complete life support system. As there was no such apparatus on the body when you arrived, it was natural to assume that you would have questions. We have decided to answer them where we can. Unfortunately, that is the end of my ability to inform you of that which you do not know. Again, our number one desire is that you continue your research without it being tainted by knowledge from your future. And probability told you that this disclosure would not alter my research. Not far enough to be statistically important, no. <laughs> now what? Now you should go out and enjoy Paris. That is what this young man had come to the city to do, after all. My recall is set for two hours from now. If I'm out and about, won't you lose this body that you desired? <laughs> Might I suggest that you return just inside of two hours, then? Here, take my watch. The doctor bids farewell to Calypso and goes out into the weak Parisian sunshine to explore the city for a bit before her recall chimes call her home. She is dissatisfied with the lack of information this Calypso has provided, but she is gratified to learn that SBMI is possible. Perhaps she will have to revisit Paris often enough that she can catch up with the inhabitant of Calypso that was more willing to share information. But now, we must leave the doctor to her wandering and pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello, listeners. Eddie Louise here, head writer of the Tales of Sage and Savant. I started writing this story because I wanted to imagine a world where women could be mad scientists, where the sex you were assigned at birth didn't limit the range of your imagination or the scope of your opportunities. That is the world that our sponsor, Chick Tech, envisions. They are working for a safe, inclusive, and innovative technology future that includes equal pay, participation, and treatment of women. They are dedicated to retaining women in the technology workforce and increasing the number of women and girls pursuing technology-based careers. 
ChickTech facilitates hands-on technology-centric events and programs to empower, support, and increase the confidence of women and girls. Through their events, they build community, empower participants to see themselves as leaders, and provide networking and mentoring opportunities in the rapidly growing high-tech industry. ChickTech empowers community members to change the face of technology in their city. With chapters across the country, they've built a multi-generational movement where people everywhere are improving their lives, the lives of girls in their area, and the technology industry itself. To learn more about this amazing organization, check out their website at www.chicktech.org. That's www.chicktech.org. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. Support ChickTech, the organization working for a safe, inclusive and innovative technology future for all. And now, back to our show. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but I am pretty blown away by the conversation Dr. Sage had with Calypso. Is this what the transmigrationists of my time are doing? How many SBMI subjects are there? In how many times and places? Is this why there are over 500 of them? What actually is Le Chargé de la Faire up to? I wish I could tell you, but as my remit is to study Dr. Sage and her travels, I will have to confine my reporting to those things I can observe and understand. I am sorry I cannot provide the answers to all the questions this task has raised. What I can tell you is that Sage returned to King's College and after checking that the extra food Abigail had put out for her creatures was still sufficient, she immediately sent herself on to the court of Charlemagne, stopping only to remove the tuning fork on her own plinth and to check that the recall mechanism was set to the correct day and time to bring the three of them home together. She awoke 12 miles outside of Aachen in the body of an old woman who had died of asphyxiation from choking on a chicken bone. She was alone in the cottage, and when she realized she was choking, she threw her body over the lip of a box bed, driving the edge of the frame up into her belly. <coughs> Once she was breathing normally, Sage had a look about. The cottage was small and neat, but there was only a narrow cot and no sign of family. It was entirely possible that no one who knew this woman had any idea she was dead. Sage opened the only cupboard in the small room and found a rind of good cheese and half a loaf of bread. She bundled these into a small cloth and stepped outside. There was a well in the kale yard and on a small stool beside it a stone jug. She filled the empty jug with fresh water from the well and set out in a direction she hoped was towards the city. As had happened many times before, luck was with her and Sage had chosen the correct direction to reach Aachen. After a few hours of walking, she appeared in the menagerie, tired and footsore, but happy to rejoin her friends. Already, Abigail's influence on the menagerie is apparent. The cages are clean, and the smell of fresh hay has replaced that of moldy dung. Some animals are contentedly eating from baskets of fresh grasses and grains. Others are neatly curled up, sleeping, or contentedly chewing their cuds. 
fellow Kingsmen! Dr. Sage, is that you? Yes, Abigail, it is. Sorry for the delay in getting back to you. Have you been up to no good? Quite the opposite. I've been up to plenty of good. We've met the Emperor. Professor, Dr. Sage is here! Petra! Oh, I'm so glad you're here! Erasmus hurried down the hall into the rotunda, his eyes searching for the face of his friend. When he sees her, he hurries over and sweeps her into his arms. Petra, I'm so glad to see you. We were worried that we might have to celebrate the holiday without you. I wouldn't have let that happen, Erasmus. I would have been here sooner if it were not for the walk. Oh, my dear, I did not think about it. You awakened alone. However did you manage the triage? What did this body die of? Don't fuss, Erasmus. It was just a simple case of asphyxiation thanks to a chicken bone lodged in the throat. I expelled the bone and all was well. Now, tell me about what the two of you have been up to. Oh, Dr. Sage, we've had the most marvelous time. Charles is such a nice man and- Charles? Charlemagne. He's witty and learned and also concerned for the health of his animals. <laughs> oh, is he now? <laughs> Perhaps you can give me the grand tour tomorrow. Right now I'm dead on my feet and could really use a hearty dinner and a good night's sleep. The hearty dinner was no trouble, but Abigail's concern for the creatures and Savant's excitement at witnessing the construction of the Aachen Cathedral meant neither of them had paid much mind to the comfort of their sleeping quarters. They were still bunking in the same scratchy pile of straw they had first awakened in. Oh, oh, this will never do. You have no idea what diseases might be lurking in that dirty straw. But Petra, we didn't die of disease. We died from bad elephant handling policies. Bad elephant what? These men obviously did not know that elephants need a wide-mouthed tub to eat from. And in these narrow confines, the only way the poor thing could get enough leverage to pick up its food was to press its hindquarters against the wall. These doofuses obviously got trapped and pressed to death. <laughs> you have got to be kidding. Oh, I am deadly serious. The elephant trunk is an instrument of great flexibility and dexterousness, but it needs space to work. We have improved the elephant situation already. I moved the poor beast out into the horse pen. The horses welcomed the company and the poor pachyderm can stretch her legs. Well, that is all very well and good then. But though I would really like to stretch out myself, I refuse to do so in such dirty straw. Where can I find a pitchfork? So Sage chippied them into bettering their living situation. They cleared away all the dirty straw, swept and washed the stone room, found a stack of canvas sheets and formed bedrolls with them, stuffing them full of clean straw. After that, Sage tasked Savant with creating a small brazier under the window opening whilst she and Abigail sourced food. It was a tired but happy bunch that sat down a few hours later to a dinner of cheese, bread, fruit and wine. They sat in easy camaraderie around a small fire in the professor's brazier and talked until sleep overtook them. In the morning, Abigail scurried out to take care of her creatures, and Erasmus volunteered to take Petra to see construction underway on Aachen Cathedral. It is so exciting, Petra, to see the construction of this building that will eventually see the crowning of over 40 German kings and queens through the ages. 
I, of course, have been to the cathedral before, though not in my latest journey to Germany, but I have walked to the Palatine Chapel and gaped in wonder at the marvels of its construction. But now I can see it's so fresh the paint still smells. Oh, it's a wonder. <laughs> and I imagine you've been making a nuisance of yourself. Oh, no. I've stayed out of the way. Oh, it's enough to gaze upon the original plans of Odo of Merritt's. The polygonal plans of elaborate elevations of the buildings he created. Hearken to the Basilica San Vitale of Ravenna, as well as to the late Roman architecture with Byzantine style. Otto is the bridge between ancient Rome and modern Europe, and it's all reflected in the gracious lines of the Palatine Chapel. The days in Charlemagne's court passed in a contented blur as Abigail saw to the comfort and well-being of her creatures, and Sage followed Savant about as he explored the quiet renaissance that Charles was bringing to Germany via art, architecture, and education. Knights were snug in their little stone room, just the three of them, talking late into the night on subjects both trivial and philosophical. As Christmas approached, the winter arrived, dropping a blanket of snow and giving Abigail a whole host of new problems to deal with in the menagerie. She was in her element, so Sage and Savant left her to it and occupied their time in other ways, mostly by taking long walks through the winter wonderland. At this point last year, you were the delightful and fiery-tempered Hildy. <laughs> and you were the dark and handsome Tubbs who was constantly throwing knives at me. <laughs> Only to pin you down, my dear. Whether you are Petra or Hildy, or yourself in the guise of an old woman. Old? Speak for yourself, Greybeard. You cannot distract me with my beard, Petra. I will say what I have set out to say. <laughs> You'll have to catch me first. Oh, hey! Oh, 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 oh. You will pay for that, woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 mercy, 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 oh, mercy on an old man, oh, oh. I will grant you every mercy until the end of time, Erasmus. You know that. That is good. Because what I wanted to tell you is that I have thought long and hard about it. My family will not pressure me to marry because my older brother has already provided the heir and... Erasmus. No, Petra. Now it is your time to listen. I know that you do not plan on marrying, and I will not pressure you to change that position. But I also will not leave your side. There is no other woman for me. No other that could challenge me so, nor dazzle me with their intellect, nor open doors to knowledge I only dreamed of acquiring before I met you. So if my lot is to be your companion and friend only, then it is a lot I am content with. Erasmus, I don't know what to say. Then say nothing, woman. Run! <laughs> they did not celebrate Christmas in any recognizable way in Charlemagne's day. No greenery nor carols, no Santa Claus nor nativity displays, no presents. But that did not stop our trio from making their own celebration in the little stone room they had made their own. Petra and Erasmus spent a day in the forest at the edge of the city cutting boughs of cedar and fir with which to deck the halls. This so pleased Abigail that they went out again and gathered stalks of holly, rich with bright red berries. This in turn inspired Abigail to visit the emperor. Ah, oh, Erbach, 
Come in, come in out of the cold. Thank you, Your Grace. Happy Yuletide to you. We are Christian here, Herr Bach. Oh. We do not celebrate the pagan way. Yes, of course. I'm sorry. Old habits die hard. Uh, a blessed Christmas to you. Come now. No need for the long face. We are not inflexible. <laughs> it would take a life of learning to confidently walk in the footsteps of our Lord. Do what do I owe the pleasure of your visit? Are the animals of the menagerie weathering the winter all right? Oh, yes, indeed. I think you'll be quite pleased with the changes. You will come and inspect soon. There is no time like the present. Huh. Let me get my cloak. Your Grace, I came to ask a boon for the menagerie workers. They have done an extraordinary job with the changes I've implemented, and I thought it might be nice to give them with an extra candle to keep the darkness at bay during the long nights. That is a request easily granted, but take me to see your improvements and we shall see if the men are as deserving as you say. Abigail confidently walked the Emperor to her menagerie, and then through each of the aisles, pointing out improvements such as drainage channels and separated sleeping and eating areas for the creatures. You have done all of this in a week? I know. It was slow going because the men did not trust my ideas at first, but they have noticed how much easier it is to feed the animals now and have been much more responsive since. Next week, we plan on building a climbing rack for the chimpanzees and setting in a pond for the otters. <laughs> you have convinced me. I will have extra candles sent for all. The Emperor did better than just candles. On Christmas Eve, he sent his stewards with a host of gifts for his menagerie keeper and the staff. Candles! And bread! Pears! Honey! And pheasant! So it was a very merry holiday indeed. After church in the new cathedral on Christmas Day, Abigail hitched horses to a sleigh and the trio went for an exhilarating ride through the countryside. The clean, crisp air, the pristine snow and high spirits of the day provided enough cheer to fill the days until the recall sounded and they returned to King's. Oh, that is a strange feeling. Yes, when you've been in another body for some time, coming home can be a bit disorienting. Do be careful with your elbows as you move around door jams. To coming home from Senegal, I was constantly banging mine. <laughs> As in all transitions, slow and steady is the key. Welcome home, friends, and happy Christmas. And to you, dearest friends. Merry Christmas, creatures. Oh, how I've missed you. And so our trio enjoys a moment of happy peace, and we wish the same for each and every one of our listeners. Please join us again on the 1st of January as we ring in the new year with the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for season three was interpreted and recorded by Valentine Wolf. Special music in this episode was provided by This Way to the Egress. Check them out at thiswaytotheegress.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Chick Tech. 
Episode 305, Part B, Bright Spots in Dark Times, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website sageandsavant.com to find the facts behind the fiction. And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science. Science.